Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. My name's Dashara Dibley from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, and today I'm speaking with Professor Nick Enfield. Nick is a Professor of Linguistics at the University of Sydney and Director of the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Centre and the Sydney Centre for Language Research. He's head of a research excellence initiative on the crisis of post-truth discourse, and his research on language culture, cognition, and social life is based on long-term fieldwork in mainland Southeast Asia, especially Laos. He's published widely in linguistics, anthropology, and cognitive science journals, and has written for The Guardian, The Times, The Wall Street Journal, and Science. Welcome, Nick. It's wonderful to have you with us today. So just to set the context, I'm interested in how the field of linguistics intersects with human rights, just in broad terms. Well, the field of linguistics is all about languages and language, and that sometimes means looking at technicalities of language, but most importantly, it's looking at a system of communication that living people use in conducting their everyday affairs in social life and also in political life. Languages are not only a tool for social interaction, but they're also a sign of people's identity. They have a lot to do with people's community cohesion, who they are, how they conduct their business, what their cultural values are, all of these things associated with language. And so linguistics inevitably comes up against these kind of questions of social life, cultural life, political life. And that brings you into the kind of sphere of rights and duties. In relation to language, one of the most prominent issues, I think, for human rights is language endangerment and the fact that many languages are spoken by very small numbers of people. So there's some 7,000 languages spoken in the world and their average number of speakers is around 7,000 people. So most languages in the world are spoken by only a few thousand or a few hundred or a few tens of people. And that is a major issue for many indigenous cultures, especially that are their means of expression, their means of, uh, you know, verbal art, many of their cultural traditions associated with the language are threatened by these processes of language endangerment. So that's one of the important areas where human rights comes into play. There are other areas where, for example, people may be denied their right to speak their language or they might have a very restricted set of contexts in which they can speak their language and that's often a bone of legal contention, for example, fighting for the right to use your language in certain kinds of contexts. So linguistics joins with this theme in many ways. And what about in your own work about language and culture and social and political life in Laos? Do you set out to investigate human rights issues or are you driven by other questions that happen to intersect? So a lot of my work in Laos has to do with working on the description of languages that have never been described before that have only been described in very bare sort of detail. So the main project that I'm busy with at the moment is working with a group of people in the uplands of Laos around 300 kilometers due east of the capital city of Yangchang and just inside the Vietnam border. Uh, and this language is called Cree. It's spoken by about three or 400 people in that area. And one of my main goals there is to understand what that language is like, to record it, to document it, to analyze it. And part of the goal of that work is a scientific enterprise 
documenting the diversity of human languages. So, you know, there's a general thread in my work that is part of the core of the discipline of linguistics, which is trying to understand what is this thing called language? What is this unique communication system that only humans have? One of the key ways to get at that is to understand the diversity, how different languages can be. So there's a really important thread of work in linguistics that's specifically about analyzing that diversity. Historically, linguistics is heavily oriented to European languages, you know, very Eurocentric, very much focused on languages that have written traditions. So a big piece of what I do is to try to contribute to correcting that and moving our focus in linguistics to more evenly or to better represent the diversity of human language. And I happen to be involved in Laos. I, ha- you know, I happen to have invested my research years in Laos. So that's a place that I know well and I understand the national language well. And so I'm able to travel there. I'm able to speak to community members there. And one thing led to another and I found myself working on this particular language in Laos. So that project is descriptive, but it's also a project that involves analysis of the social situation that the Cree speakers find themselves in. And that is partly a question of how they interact with other languages and cultures. Like anywhere in Laos, the speakers of this rather small language find themselves in constant interaction with speakers of other languages. So it's a highly multilingual kind of setting. And the languages have different kind of statuses relative to each other. And then they're kind of subordinate, if you like, to national languages like Lao or Vietnamese. So there's a very dynamic, very interesting kind of set of relationships among these different language communities. And this is the second kind of big piece of what I do is to try to understand how those dynamics work, how people in those different communities, how well they can speak each other's languages, what kind of value they place on multilingualism, and you know, ultimately how those interactions play a role in, in their livelihoods. So the people who speak Cree, they also live in an area which has been affected by the development of a large hydroelectric dam. And you've done some research around the impact of that on those communities. So Laos is a quite mountainous country. The mountains are not especially high. It's not like the Himalayas or anything, but it's a very hilly place. So there are many, many river valleys that are well suited to being dammed and used in hydroelectricity projects. So there's many hydroelectric dam projects across Laos. And this particular one is called the Turn 2 project. And when it was built, and I think still to date, it's the biggest hydroelectricity project in the country. Uh, And it was built by a huge consortium that included the main electricity authority of Thailand and the electricity authority of France and the World Bank. And, you know, it really started to pick up speed in the 90s when, you know, the surveys of the area were being done, including kind of ethno-linguistic surveys of the different communities and language groups that were living around the area. The project area itself is absolutely massive because it's a great big plateau where the dam is and this plateau is kind of perched up on top of an escarpment. So they dammed this quite small, narrow sort of area downstream and it's filled this massive plateau and made a great big lake and to the east of that big lake there's the the watershed area I and mean, that's become a protected area it's a area of extremely high biodiversity 
you know, and they have tigers up there and they have all manner of rare species. It's a wonderfully diverse place, you know, the plant life as well as the animal life. And that's the area where the Cree speakers live. And there are numerous other cultural groups and language groups that live in this particular area. Now, historically, that area has been very isolated. I mean, it still is quite isolated. It's far from the Mekong River. When I first started working in the area, it was essentially a three or four day walk to get to the Mekong River. But if you just wanted to get to the first kind of market town, it was two day walk at the very least. People, in fact, were closer to Vietnam by foot. So, you know, over the years, there have been these different kind of fortunes of do we walk to the east? Do we walk to the west? You know, who do we kind of get in contact with? When the dam was built and therefore when the lake was created, that had very significant effects on the everyday lives of Cree speakers. Now, I'm not saying that their centuries-old traditions were suddenly changed. The reality of life in a place like that is it's constantly changing. And, you know, there have been periods in history where they've oriented towards the east or towards the north or towards the south. But in any case, the creation of the dam was clearly a highly significant event and certainly one that drew them more directly into the wider world than any other event in history. I mean, even the the Vietnam War, that area was relatively untouched. Areas of Laos were very heavily bombed and very heavily affected by fighting, but this kind of pocket was surprisingly less affected. So the changes that have taken place, I think, most recently have really been about people's access to different kinds of markets and different kinds of features of the mainstream society, I would think. What was life like before the dam was built? So when I started working there, the first trip I took to that area was in 2004 and the dam had not yet been built. So it was being built and the local physical environment was roughly as it had been, although some really intensive logging had been happening for a decade or so. So that had been disrupting things. But the most striking aspect of life was simply that, you know, any kind of travel that you needed to take was by foot. They're quite small rivers and they're broken up by rapids and rocky areas. So there's not really a lot of opportunity to travel around by boat. At that time, you know, there weren't any bicycles or motorbikes or there was basically just walking. And so I would walk, two-day walk, you'd have to sleep in villages along the way to get up there. And that was kind of an adventure for me, but, you know, daily life for people in, in those communities And, you know, I witnessed people just putting up with toothache until their tooth fell out because, you know, they weren't going to necessarily walk two days to go to a dentist and didn't have money to pay for that anyway. You know, I very sadly witnessed a woman die after childbirth because it was impossible to get her to the care that she needed within the time that she needed it because of the transport situation. So life, you know, I think was dictated by this incredible kind of isolation. But it also meant that people were very self-reliant and the world was very, you know, self-generated and and made sense within itself. And that's not to say that they were isolated as a culture or a community. A big piece of what we've been studying is how thoroughly integrated their lives are with people of other language groups and other culture groups that, that live in close proximity to them. So I say they're isolated and it's true. But they're an hour's walk from a village of another ethnic group and they're two hours walk from a village of yet another ethnic group and they have quite intense social relationships with those other groups. You know, in the times when, for example, was in the area when there was a uh, rice shortage due to weather conditions, so too much sun at a particular moment meant that the rice crop was much less than they had hoped. So there was a lot of 
borrowing of rice from one area to the other and people walking for several hours to ask for rice from other villages and that's where you really saw the the relationships the intercultural relationships the interlinguistic relationships being kind of cashed out in in some very concrete way and you could really see that people's relationships and people's dependence on each other was very meaningful so I guess, I mean, I think the one thing I would want to add to the to answer your question is that people in that time, and still to a large extent now, are really not particularly dependent on the national economy. They're really not particularly dependent on the national government, uh, although the national government is now much more involved in their lives from day to day. You know, they've, they've got their own kind of world up there. So what did the dam mean for day-to-day life for people who speak Cree? So what it's meant for them day-to-day is that a lot of the hardship of life has lessened in certain ways. So, you know, I think one of the expectations is, you know, this will destroy their world in these certain kinds of ways. Things like needing to get medical care in a hurry, that's now a hell of a lot easier. And there's an offset there, there's a trade-off there because... So just in terms of transport, where I said before that it was like a two or two and a half day walk to get from their village to the main town where, let's say, you know, a hospital is. Now, the difference is that you have to pay money, whereas before you didn't have to pay money. So there's, a, there's an issue there. But of course, the trade-off there is that instead of it taking two and a half days, is it just takes a few hours. So you can drive or you can ride on a boat just directly across the lake rather than walking across a plateau. And then when you hit the other side in the watershed, what is now a port village, and with the dam came also certain forms of development such as new transport routes within the forest areas. So it used to be walking tracks only, but very few. Now these roads inside the watershed are designed such that plow tractors can go across them, but not cars. There's no cars or trucks up there. And that's a condition of... um, of the dam in fact so world bank had certain conservation minded measures so that was one of them but now the watershed is motorbikes everywhere plow tractors everywhere and from a villager's perspective that is good because they can go and come very quickly but it does have all these knock-on effects so there are some effects on the environment so it's much easier for example to get illicit timber and transport it out of the watershed and that's a kind of a cash opportunity for people who are prepared to break the law and take protected timber out of the watershed and of course just having you know petrol motors and so forth up there is is an opportunity for pollution in terms of the language there's something interesting with these changes and that is that people are coming less and less into the kind of intensive contact between different languages than they used to so you know, it used to be if you had to walk for a couple of days to get from your village to, you know, let's say the clinic at the nearest hospital, you know, you'd have sort of dozens of occasions where you'd bump into someone on the walking track and you'd stop and have a chat with them and or you'd stop at someone's house for a rest while you're walking. And you'd chat in your language, you'd chat in their language, there'd be this exchange of kind of not just information, but also language and people were very highly multilingual more than they are today. So we are noticing, and this is one of the things we're documenting, the language diversity of the area is going down and that's going in an inevitable direction, which is that more monolingual Lao speakers are living in the area now and that will presumably one day result in the Lao language, the national language of the country, displacing these other 
languages. It's interesting. So coming back then, I guess, to the question of human rights and, and where that fits within what you're looking at, does seem that this question of preserving Indigenous languages also helps us to understand cultural practices that help to preserve environmental practices, human rights and environmental rights kind of coming together in a way? Yeah, I think there are various ways in which that might be so. Certainly, Indigenous knowledge of biodiversity is high. People who are elders in these community groups and young people still today have intimate knowledge of the biodiversity and they know a lot about, you know, the relations between the various plants and the relations between the plants and the various animals and, you know, which creatures can be found near which trees and a whole lot of knowledge about the biology of the area and also knowledge about what kinds of practices are sustainable so for example when i first went to the area i was kind of horrified by the fact that people were cutting down these enormous trees to do their agricultural practices to plant rice and and other crops and you know sort of saying oh you know they're cutting down these old growth forests and the people i was with say what are you talking about you know we we cut this stuff down like i cut this stuff down when i was a kid and all this stuff has just grown back in the last 20 30 years so you suddenly start to realize that from my perspective of growing up in Australia, I see certain practices in a short term and I see that certain things look very destructive. But people who are in the know realize that, oh, actually, these types of practices, but not these other types of practices are sustainable as long as you have the right kind of outlook and as long as you have the right frame in mind and as long as you have the right kind of population level and so on. So there's a lot of knowledge about sustainable practices that, you know, is held by those indigenous groups. The extent to which it's related to language is an interesting question. So there are certainly words and kind of systems of classification that people have in indigenous languages that would relate to that knowledge. But there's another important component of all of this, and that is really just that languages hold communities together. They help to ensure a continuity between the generations and quite independent of what specific information is encoded in, in a given language, as long as you have a kind of a cohesion in a community and a, and a healthy community passing on of traditions, then that will give you a greater likelihood that that intimate knowledge from decades ago is being passed on in, in its entirety to the younger generation. And, and this is what we see today is that there's a great disruption to that transmission. Is there any controversy in publishing the findings of this sort of research? Do you get pushback from governments or from World Bank or any of the other funders who are involved in the dam? I personally haven't. I've been involved in many different meetings and discussions and consultations with people in the government and in organizations like the World Bank over the years because, you know, I'm working in the area. So I've found that people are just actually really interested in knowledge about the people who are living in these project areas. I think there's a lot of talk, you know, or you get kind of a, the caricature of a kind of a, you know, World Bank dam builder who is, you know, just wishes that humans didn't exist in that place. I don't know how many people are really like that. People obviously have different priorities, but what I have found is that people are actually genuinely really interested to find out about how they can, you know, work with communities and how they can benefit communities. And I think they're also really interested in trying to understand the communities better. So, for example, 
with the Numpton 2 dam, really when it came to crunch time, this would have been around 2005, 2006, when they were just about to actually put in the dam and seal the dam and begin the flooding of the plan to create the lake and actually get everything running. There was a period of delay that was to do with a village that was very close to the dam site itself and elderly woman who was a kind of spiritual elder in that place who was not prepared to allow this to happen and so there was a lot of kind of controversy around this and 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 some people going oh you know this is ridiculous and you know this one little old lady is stopping this multi-billion dollar dam from going ahead at the same time you know world bank had put in these quite careful ethical guidelines saying no no we, re- we have to secure proper agreements and consent So there was an interesting period where this was delayed probably by some months by this particular woman and her community who were rallying around her and saying, no, you know, for spiritual purposes having to do with our connection to this land, uh, we don't want to see this project go ahead. And that should be very familiar from experience of Indigenous people around the world. And, you know, it was taken seriously by quite a number of people. And so I found it encouraging, actually, in my experience of seeing this happen. I mean, in the end, the dam went ahead. But it went ahead in a way that community was happy with and, you know, it was able to go ahead in a way that wasn't, you know, well, sorry, but we're just going to do it anyway. You know, I thought it was actually handled quite well. The fact that, you know, I haven't had pushback and I haven't had resistance to the kind of work I've done has been encouraging, but also a little bit surprising because over the years, certainly in Laos prior to around 1990, but also globally, working with indigenous groups on their language and their culture is potentially a politically sensitive thing. And and it's often suppressed for the reason that it gives strength and sort of focus to the identity of that group as distinct from their identity as citizens of that nation. So Laos has roughly 80 different language culture groups uh, and yet you know it has one national language lao so the lao nation state is of course interested in maintaining unity uh, across the nation and they're interested in having all of their citizens identify first as lao and secondly as something else if applicable so i actually expected particularly early on much more suspicion around you know why are you doing this work and why would you want to support a group to potentially draw attention to well for example poverty in laos or inequality of different groups or disunity in the nation and i I was always confident that none of those issues would result from my work and i think that those kinds of problems i think are hopefully more a thing of the past than they are today but they're certainly not entirely a thing of the past well part of the reason i asked that question is because when we spoke with elaine pearson from human rights watch for the first episode of this mini series she talked about how researchers working specifically and explicitly on human rights issues wouldn't be able to get official permission to do research on those issues because it would put both the researchers and their informants at risk so i'm just wondering how much being an academic or even being a linguist specifically shields you from some of that suspicion because maybe those links between the work you're doing and the the human rights implications are not so obvious in the minds of those who are making decisions. Well, I think there have been changes over recent years. I can certainly tell you from experience that securing permission to do purely academic research has for a long time been very difficult in Laos, particularly working in more isolated areas. And so I happen to have been doing this work since I said 2004, 
I've been doing research in Laos for 14 years before that. And although I had hoped to work with indigenous languages of the country or minority languages of the country, it was only possible for me to work in more urban areas. So it's actually only a fairly recent development that academic research has become more freely possible. Part of that has come from developments in the country where, you know, now there's a national university of Laos and there is more of a kind of infrastructure for research culture. So that didn't exist when I was first in Laos. Uh, You know, there are various scholarly academies now that provide a kind of infrastructure and a kind of culture in which research of this kind makes sense. The other thing I'd say about what I do is that while my work clearly touches on issues relating to human rights, like, for example, the right to maintain one's language or to use one's language or rights in relation to one's livelihoods. So my work touches on those things. That's not what I'm primarily studying. So in terms of my proposals for research, either to the relevant authorities in Laos or to my funding authorities in Australia, you know, none of those proposals discuss human rights as such, and I'm not writing about human rights. I sometimes talk about these kinds of issues, for example, if I'm asked, such as in this interview, but you know, it's not the core of my interest. So I think that that's partly why the issue doesn't arise. But I I certainly know of many people in Laos over the years who've had problems accessing the places and the communities that they've been interested to access in terms of understanding. So in the early days of the Turn 2 project in the 90s, I knew some researchers who were interviewing people in the capital city, for example, you know, officials from the World Bank about the project, but it was impossible for them to actually visit the project site. You know, I'm not saying that there was somebody blocking this because there were human rights issues, but whatever the reason is, it was just simply not possible to gain the permissions and, and, and travel within Laos is a bit more restricted than it is in many other places. And permissions are needed for me to this day. I mean, I need to have paperwork done before I can go to the villages that I work in. I suppose like everything else, the more time you spend in a place and the more you strike up relationships with the relevant people and the better you are known and recognised, the easier things become. Excellent. And now we get to listen to all these fascinating stories about different language groups. So thanks, Nick. I think that's given us some really great insight into what's happening in this, you know, far away little pocket of Laos and given us some great food for thought around the rights of Indigenous people to maintain the use of their language and the implications for both their communities and the environment if those languages are not looked after. Thank you very much. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.